Jesus is greater than Moses. That sounds pretty obvious, really, but thinking back to the context of why this book was written, which we'll come to in a minute, they, they needed to remember that. They needed to be told that again. Jesus is greater than Moses. What Jesus has done is greater than what God did through Moses. The covenant that Jesus has made is greater, better than the one that God made through Moses. Let's read it bit by bit through together. Therefore, holy brothers, include sisters, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he, Jesus, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. We look at a building and say that was built by or that the architect was. The builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all his house, God's house, as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. The writer says, consider Jesus and compare him to Moses. Why? Think of the, why this book was written again. Because the people to whom this letter was, were addressed, was addressed were Hebrews and had lived under the covenant God gave through Moses, the law, the Old Testament. But they were now believers in Messiah, Jesus. And they were living in the AD 60s when Christianity was being severely persecuted. And they were in this crisis, tempted to disavow Jesus, to reject the gospel, and go back to following Moses. So the writer argues this out. Moses led Israel out of slavery, out of Egypt, through their trials in the wilderness. Yes, Moses was the apostle, the pioneer leader and the prophet to Israel, and his brother Aaron became the high priest of Israel. Both of them were descendants of Levi, but Jesus is the far greater apostle and leader, the far greater prophet whom Moses predicted and foresaw prophetically. This is what Jesus was doing when he fed multitudes miraculously in remote places. All right. Why, why did he feed 5,000, 7,000 people in the wilderness? Because he was copying Moses. He was the greater Moses. He'd only just fed thousands of people on the hillside and the scribes and the Pharisees came and said to him, show us a sign. I mean, talk about too blind to see. <laughs> did, did, did you not see that? Jesus is also our high priest, but of another and greater order than the line of Aaron and Levi. We come to that later in Hebrews. Moses was faithful in God's house. Now, there was no temple then, so this house refers to the tent or the tabernacle, but mainly, really, to the house of Israel, the community of God. Moses was faithful in God's household. Moses oversaw God's household as its leader, the community of Israel. But Jesus has been faithful to God in God's house and he is altogether greater than Moses. Moses was a servant. Jesus is the son of the household. 
Jesus is clearly more glorious than Moses and the covenant that Jesus brings us into is greater and better than the covenant God made with Israel through Moses the mediator. We're called holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. A heavenly calling, not an earthly one. It's not some earthly land and inheritance. A heavenly calling. We're called holy. Those who have been chosen and set apart by God for himself. We're led not by Moses, but by Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our faith, our confession. Just as Moses led Israel out of Egypt, we're called out from the world with its values and its systems and its corruption to follow Jesus, our leader and our high priest. We are the house of the Lord. We've just read it. Whose house we are. If we hold fast to our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Not a building. Not a temple in Jerusalem, nor a building here in Harlow. We are the temple of the Lord. God does not live in buildings made by men's hands. Stephen, who was martyred for it, said this to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish authorities. The Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. That is apostolic doctrine. God cannot live in anything that we make. He lives in things that he makes. And the scriptures tell us there are two temples that God is concerned about, and neither of them sits on a hill in Jerusalem. First one is this. You, if you're a Christian, you, your body, is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You as an individual, the individual Christian, is a temple for God to live in. And then the second one, and there are three scriptures on this, whereas there's only one on you individually. We together, we as a community, are a temple, a house for God to fill with himself. We together are the temple of God. God lives by his spirit in you and in us together. And he makes nowhere else his home. Now you say, well, God's everywhere. Yes, he is. But God is everywhere. But he doesn't manifest his presence everywhere. He doesn't portray himself and display himself everywhere. He chooses to do so in two places. You as an individual Christian and us as a church community. His body. This building is not the house of the Lord. We are individually and together. And as members of his house, his household, his community, we must hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. No wavering. No in and out. Faith that continues. Faith that endures. Faith that is seen in faithfulness even under trial and oppression. How does faith come to endure in this way? Well, that's what Hebrews is teaching. And the point here is by considering Jesus. By keep looking to him. By keeping coming to Jesus. Crying out to him. Trusting him. Obeying him. But now Hebrews takes us to the second big warning of the book. And in fact, do you remember I read Psalm 95 earlier? I didn't. I read about half. The other half is right here, quoted in Hebrews chapter 3. Half a psalm, big chunk of scripture. 
Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, and this is Psalm 97, verse, Psalm 95, verse 7b, that's the second half of verse 7 to the end. Today, if you hear my voice, most, com- most Greek scholars, uh, sorry, Hebrew scholars agree that it should be my voice rather than his voice there. Do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was angry with this generation and said they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. First half of the psalm, the the psalmist is calling people to worship Yahweh. I read it earlier, the Lord. But then halfway through, it seems as if the Lord responds and speaks back to them. What we've just read in Hebrews. It's as if the Lord replies to their praises with this warning. You wouldn't expect that, would you? You know, everyone's praising God. You expect the Lord to say, oh, well done, children. I'm, I'm so happy to be with you today. And he, instead he says, listen, listen. Today, if you would hear my voice, do not harden your heart like they did. Isn't that remarkable? God steps in and speaks back to them, but in a tone of warning. The Lord was provoked by Israel in the wilderness by their hardness and waywardness of heart. So we are urged, don't follow that example. Bear in mind, Hebrew Christians tempted to re- revoke, disavow Jesus, go back to Moses, Mosaism, as I call it theologically. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't be like them. The mention of 40 years is significant. The people of Israel were delivered out of Egypt, led by Moses, but practically the whole of that adult population died during a 40-year period of traveling in the wilderness. Why? They failed to enter the promised land because of their unbelief, their hardness of heart, their rebellion, their grumbling, and their complaining. God had it with them. God swore in his anger that they would not enter into the rest that he'd promised them. Notice that. He promised something, but they didn't get it because of their unbelief. They died in the wilderness, and their children, who they'd been pretending to be worried about, our kids will get killed by these people, and God says, your kids will inherit, but you won't. Their children inherited what had been promised to them. The warning then turns from that example of Israel 1,500 years before the coming of Jesus to the first century Hebrew Christians and to us too. So let's move on. Oh, look at that. Untidy. Take care, brethren, that there be, that there not be, sorry, I'm quoting from the King James instead of the Nath, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. That's a serious statement of Scripture, isn't it? <coughs> Let me pick up on a word with you. We often, you often hear it used, backsliding. Backsliding. Backsliding in the Bible language is actually far worse than you think. 
The word backsliding appears in the King James Version. In modern translations, it's more often shown as unfaithfulness or apostasy. In the Old Testament, Israel is described uh, by um, Hosea and Jeremiah particularly as a backsliding nation. Israel, the northern kingdom particularly. Here's Hosea speaking to them. Since Israel is stubborn, King James backslides like a stubborn, backsliding heifer. Twice more in Hosea the word appears in the King James. In Jeremiah the word backslide occurs 13 times. I'm not going to look them all up with you this morning before you take a deep breath. But the repeated use of the expression tells us that this is important. I want to paint a picture for you here. I've seen a backsliding heifer. And it's like that. You might be young bulls. Someone is trying to lead a, a cow, male or female, bull or cow, along, all right? And the animal digs its hooves into the ground, stiffens its neck, pulls back and refuses to move forward. That's backsliding. It's stubborn rebellion. That's what the Bible means by it. It's not slip sliding away as the Paul Simon song goes. This is, I am not moving. And scripture here attributes that kind of falling away to this. Now listen. To an evil, unbelieving heart. God said of the Israelites in the wilderness, they always go astray in their heart. And they did not know my ways. Now, None of us want to think of ourselves this way. We, we'd like to commend ourselves for having good motives. A kind heart. And, you know, I'm a good guy really. And we make excuses. But the Bible here says very directly that the root of falling away from the living God is this. Having an evil, unbelieving heart. Let me put that into very plain terms. We fall away because we want to. We've chosen that path. Heart in the Bible points to your inner person. It's not altogether different from saying mind or your spirit. The Bible uses these words rather interchangeably before you believe some preacher telling you they, this means exactly that and that means exactly that. The Bible doesn't work like that, I'm afraid, on the way we are as human beings. But heart points to the seat of your emotions and your affections. And it's out of your emotions and your affections you make choices. Because you want it. You prefer it. Sometimes, this is not a male and female thing, we make choices not because of a logical reasoning of it out. Now, if I do this and do that, I've got it, right. We do it simply because we feel like it. Yeah? We want to. It's our heart that very often drives our choices in life. And guess what? Scripture, God himself, holds us entirely responsible for the state of our own heart. Therefore, for our falling away from following the Lord. And apart from work or illness or crisis that would keep us away from fellowship on Sundays or midweek, for most of us, the simple fact is this. We opt in or opt out because we want to. We're making a choice. Yeah. 
That is what is in our heart. We're doing just what we want to do. We're perfectly entitled to do what we want to do. The problem is, it doesn't benefit us very often doing what we want to do. We therefore must pay attention and take care, starting with our hearts. There's a lovely scripture in Proverbs. I've known this for years and years and years and years. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he, it says in another place in scripture. Jesus talked about hearts. Good man out of his good heart brings out good things, and evil man out of his evil heart brings out bad things. Therefore, take care, Jesus is saying, to what's going on in your heart. You know, to take care of the things that you, you, you take, with your, take in with your eyes and so on, because they feed your heart. Watch over your heart with all diligence. All diligence, that's like, not whether you feel like it, it's like, it's got to be done. It's got to be done. Watch over my heart. Know the condition, the health of your heart. Recognize the choices that you're making and that they are flowing from your heart. And the way to fix the choices is to get the heart changed. Let me draw an analogy with you, with the physical heart, okay? A bit of a gruesome picture coming up. That's what you call a gym freak. A man may be a gym freak, a bulked-up muscle mass, but if his heart, could add his lungs as well, is not conditioned by good food, exercise and rest, and if his heart and organs are being strained by an unbalanced diet and foolish workouts and perhaps by steroids, guess what? A lot of people like that die young. He will weaken and die because he's built one thing, but he's weakened his heart, even though he looks like a strong man. We need good food and exercise and medicine and rest to maintain a healthy body. But we need grace and truth and obedience for a healthy heart. So Hebrews goes right on. You don't want to look at him anymore. No, you really don't. Hebrews goes on to say this. How, what's one of the keys to, 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 to dealing with our hearts? It's this. Encourage one another. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We come back to this matter of fellowship, encouraging one another in following the Lord. By the way, I want to acknowledge he's out of the room, but Jack preached a great deal about the heart last week, and Andy brought a word to you about, about fellowship as well, about being picked off when you get separated. Notice that Scripture here does not say week by week or Sunday by Sunday. It says day after day, what day of the week is that? Whatever day is called today. Every day. Every day until the last day. Why? Because it's this important, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need other people to tell us when we're getting tricked and deceived. The thing about deception is this, it's deceitful. You don't know you're deceived until either God or someone else tells you, I'm sorry, but you've been misled there. You've missed it. Can I straighten you out? Can I help you to see it? So that none of you will be be hardened by the deceitfulness of sins. When we separate ourselves, we're susceptible to being deceived 
and led astray. One step follows another in our journey, either of faith and obedience or our journey of unbelief and disobedience. We're making progress one way or another, day by day. And the more we move away from Jesus and away from fellowship with his people by which we gain more of his grace, the harder our heart will become. On the other hand, the more we look for the grace from, of God in other disciplines like Bible reading and prayer and so on, but also in this incredible means of grace of fellowship, the more we grow in faith, the more we grow in Christ. Scripture goes on, for we've become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart is when they provoke me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, not all, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? I mean, you know, almost all of them. The great majority of them. One or two exceptions. But most of them were grumbling and complaining and rebelling against Moses. And God said to Moses, they're not fighting me, they're fighting you. They're not fighting you, they're fighting me. They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. Therefore, I'm going to do something about this. You don't need to complain to me, Moses. I'm concerned about this more than you. And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see they were not able to enter because of unbelief. That's the last verse of Hebrews 3. Whoa. Again, we're urged to enduring faith, to hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. You know, Jesus said when he comes to, on, the, on the earth, will he find faith? Faith that keeps on praying, faith that keeps on enduring. You know, a lot of people make a big deal about how they got saved. That's great, we all, want, we all have a good story about how someone became a Christian. But you know what's the testimony of grace? That you're still continuing on in the grace of God. And actually you're growing in the grace of God. And I think for centuries people have been emphasizing getting converted, getting converted, getting converted, which is true, excellent. But there's been a neglect on you need to keep growing. Yeah. What creature in planet Earth doesn't grow that we don't get worried about? Well, it's not growing. He's not growing. That plant's not growing. God looks at us as his children. And has his plantings too in, in other scriptures. And God is committed to our growth in character, in holiness, in purposefulness, in destiny. Then back to Psalm 95, there's a repeated quotation. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Uh, some people would say, you know, God's word doesn't return to him void, so when, when it's preached, it has an effect. Well, yes, it does, but not for everybody. Why? Because if you do not mix God's truth with faith, it will profit you nothing. You can hear gospel truth preached to you. You can read the Bible, but if you don't reach to it with faith, to receive what is being said to you, to obey the instructions that are being given to you, it doesn't profit you. There's no automatic benefit in being in church on a Sunday and hearing the gospel preached. 
if you don't receive it. Look again at Hebrews 3.13. Encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Let's take that as an example. That's scripture, yes? yes. Is it a command or instruction? Yes. Angie, thank you for your bravery. <laughs> yes, it is an instruction. Isn't it? Is it a command or an instruction? Well, it's, it's, it's both. That's, sorry, you got caught on my language. It's an instruction. Is it for our good? Yes. Does God know what he's saying to us? Yes. So why don't we do it? To dismiss this as irrelevant to us is to choose foolishness over wisdom. We're hardening our hearts against his word and it's entirely our choice and entirely our responsibility. Like Israel, we are failing to enter into rest. And there's more about that in Hebrews 4, which is next week, through unbelief. Let me say here for now that this rest for a Christian is to cease striving for acceptance and significance and love and joy and peace and find them all in and through Jesus to be filled with his fullness. So there's a lot of stuff that really doesn't matter because I know I'm his and I know who I am. Most of those who had been led by Moses out of Egypt then died in the wilderness because they sinned. They were disobedient. They were unbelieving. They didn't enter the rest that had been promised to them. Let's go back to verse 14 to finish today. I've preached shorter than I thought. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Of course, Scripture is of the command to repent and to believe the gospel. But there's also throughout Scripture great emphasis on this continuing and enduring in faith. I've said it before. Becoming a Christian is not agreeing with the preacher, raising your hand, saying a prayer. You get, a, you get this invisible ticket to heaven. You keep in your back pocket until you need it. That is not what it is to be a Christian. It is to live by faith. Yep. It's to live for Christ. Day after day after day. That was your beginning. This is now your life. For me to live is Christ. Even to die is God. What does the apostolic writer mean? And by the way, Jesus teaches about this enduring faith. What does the apostolic writer mean by our becoming partakers of Christ? Am I not his and he is mine and I'm already in Christ? Yes, yes, yes. But it's, into, it's to enter into the picture of the Old Testament is of inheritance and rest. To live in him and to know his fullness. Partakers of Christ. In the same way, you can be a partaker of bread and wine and not many minutes from now. Right? They become in you, part of you. Partakers of Christ. Living in his presence, living with the knowledge of his grace, living with you know, his guiding hand, partakers of Christ. You only do that through faith. And that's a continuing in faith and a lifestyle of faith. How do we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm to the end? By hearing and obeying him. By opening our hearts to him again and again asking him to cleanse us and keep us from unbelief and rebellion and disobedience. 
If you have some time today, go and read Psalm 51. Yes, we know David sinned grossly. Got a guy killed, you know, stole his wife, pretending to cover it all up. And Nathan says, you're the man who did it. The prayer of repentance, cleanse me. Renew a right spirit within me. In other psalms, search me and try me, Lord. Show me if there's any wicked thing in here. What's that called? It's called heart surgery. Open heart surgery. Here's my open heart. Lord, do what you want, please. We invite him in to search, to challenge, to cleanse, to straighten. Question, if, it's, if there hasn't come to your mind this morning, well done, but for many of us, this is the question that comes to our mind. What about so-and-so? <laughs> we can all think of somebody today who's gone astray and gone away. Yep. I'm going to deal with it. I, have to, I do need a few more minutes because I need to deal with this. That's right. Okay. People stumbling, people you know, being offended, people going away, Whatever. We've done this before, but let me just go quickly through it again. Jesus gives us detailed instructions, and the New Testament speaks about these things on a number of occasions. Jesus taught us this. If your brother sins, in another place it says against you, but Matthew, it's not even against you. Your brother's messing up. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. Now, go and show him his fault in private means a meeting away from a Sunday morning. You don't do it with other people going over here. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. I hope you get excited by the thought of winning. Because this is worth winning. Winning the the little, through the difficulty to win your brother is a win worth having. If he doesn't listen to you, didn't get the win first time round. Take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Implied, if he listens to the two or three of you, hallelujah. But if he doesn't listen to you, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, to the whole community, whole company. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him become to you as an outsider, a Gentile and a tax collector. I'm not going to leave it there because Jesus goes on to say this. Because this is completely connected to what he's just said. Binding and loosing is this business of forgiving sins, or not, as the case may be. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth, having forgiven someone and received them back into fellowship, and we're all excited, is loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it should be done for them by my Father, who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together. People use that as an excuse for a small prayer meeting. This is two or three people who are gathering to win their brother. Where two or three have gathered together in my name, I'm there with them. I'm there in their midst. In the rest of the New Testament, there's a mix of gentleness and urgency in this thing of how to go about winning your brother, your sister, back into the way of Christ. Galatians says, brothers, even if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, which means who have the spirit, capital S, restore such a one 
in a spirit, which is a different spirit, it's, it's, it's an attitude of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. You know, arrogance and boastfulness are nasty things. The very thought that any one of us can think, I'm all right, I'm not going to fall. Oh, really? Wish you hadn't said it. Consider yourselves that you too will not be tempted. That particularly is the danger when dealing with sexual sin. People can be drawn into something because they're cancelling it. People can be drawn into something because they're correcting it. That's why there's safety numbers and the safety in this thing of look to yourself. Be careful. You know, the temptation is equally, equally available to you. It could, could hit you just the same. In, Thess- in 2 Thessalonians 3.14, if anybody does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person, don't associate with him, so that he'll be put to shame, he's a disobedient, he's wayward. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. There's a continual appeal to the person. James 5. James seems like a forbidding book and a stern book, but there's moments of glee in here. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one of the others turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That's worth doing, isn't it? You need to know that you're doing something really, really valuable here. Heaven's rejoicing when you win. Heaven's backing you up on this. If someone will take that care and attention. By the way, uh, James there is quoting Proverbs covering sin, uh, love covering a multitude of sins. And then at the end of Jude, again Jude's a funny little book just before Revelation. Have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. I'm not going to preach all those two verses to you, isn't I? But get the picture here, like brand snatched from the burning. Burning in what? Sin, unbelief, disobedience. But snatched back from something that's consuming them, going to destroy them. It's a noble thing to be working to save our friends from their straying and disobedience to, Jesus, to the Lord Jesus. We live in the day of grace, and there's a saying, it's not Bible, but there's a saying, where there's life, there's hope. Do you recognize that? Okay, I think it, I didn't just make it up, I don't think I did. Where there's life, there's hope. Where there's still life, there is hope for that person to be restored. There is hope that God may grant them by his grace and goodness, repentance, back to faith. Be caring and gentle. I'm talking about so-and-so and how you deal with so-and-so. Yeah. Be caring and gentle. Be direct, truthful, and biblical. Be urgent. Be strong. Because to see a brother or sister turn back to faithfulness to Christ is a cause for huge celebration. Pray for it. Work for it. And many of us are adding our children to that category as well. I'm going to give you some words of promise from Scripture. I want to leave you with a promise. I suggest you take hold of these as you pray for friends and family who for now have left the way of faith and obedience in Jesus. 
Remember those scriptures in Hosea and Jeremiah about backsliding? Now hear this, as the Americans say. Now hear this. Same prophets. Jeremiah 3.21. A voice is heard on the bare heights, the weeping and the supplication of the sons of Israel. Because they have perverted their way, they have forgotten the Lord, their God. Now God speaks. Return, O faithless, backsliding sons. I will heal your faithlessness. I will heal your backsliding. Behold, they say, we come to you for you are the Lord our God. Isn't that a promise? God says, I will heal your backsliding. I will heal your faithlessness. And there's a lovely one in Hosea. I will heal their apostasy. King James is backsliding. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned away from them. God leads people back to repentance by his goodness and grace. He calls them to him. Return and I will heal you. And they in time, by God's grace, respond with, We come to you, for you are Yahweh our God. He promises that it is possible for us to be healed from backsliding. And I remember... Deep breath, David said. Okay, I remember my own great uncle who spent most of his adult years in unbelief. Went to church, but wasn't in it. And in retirement years, God brought him back to faith and obedience. And to my uncle, these promises of Scripture were more precious than diamonds. Another promise that he held to with both hands and all his heart was this. In Joel 2, verse 25. And I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten. A man in his late 60s and 70s kept quoting that verse to me because that's what he was living in. God has promised me he will restore to me the years that the locust eaten. He stood by it, lived by it. Will that help you a bit in your praying for other people? That there are some precious promises God wants to enact? He's longing to be merciful. But firstly, to finish, how many of you have been on a flight? You know the whole air hostess routine thing? Did you listen carefully to the safety lecture before you took off? I have to admit, I have heard it probably dozens of times now, all right? But it includes this. If the oxygen masks come down, put yours on first. Even to the point of do your child's next. And in this matter of some cure for our wayward hearts, listen, it's got to be in me before I'm concerned about so-and-so. This warning and the remedy of taking heed to the condition of our own hearts is medicine oxygen for us personally before we try to use it to help someone else. Attend to your own heart before you start trying to fix someone else's. What can be done for this obstinate wayward heart of mine? Comes back to scripture, comes back to Hebrews. Consider Jesus. Come to Jesus. Come to be cleansed. Come to be changed. Our song sang it earlier. I'm going to give you a very old song to close up here. This is the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. One of the verses says this. Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. 
Let thy goodness like a fetter, like a chain, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Open heart surgery is recommended regularly. Open your heart to him. Search me, O God. Let him deal with you. And then he bring cleansing and grace and change. And in so doing, he will equip you. He will equip you to take even better care of whoever so-and-so's name is. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Tamsin is going to bring a word that the Lord gave this morning and then we're going to be breaking bread but we've we've got a few moments here I don't want to push past them I want every one of us to take a few moments right now to bring our own prayer to the Lord to open our own heart If you know the words of Scripture, you can pray them. If you don't, you can still talk to them. God doesn't switch off because you can't quote Scripture to him. You can tell him how you are, what you want. You can tell him what you've been through. You can tell him what you're feeling. You can tell him what you need from him. Not external things today, internal things. Things that go to the root of you being you. The things that go on in your heart. And the things you want God to change. To cleanse. To renew, to refresh, whatever it is. In you and I today. And if you've never opened yourself to become a believer and a follower of Jesus, you could do that right now. When I was a kid, the preacher would often sing a song. I'm not going to sing it. As he made this kind of statement. Come into my heart, come into my heart, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Well, that's a good enough prayer. Come and fill my heart. Come and fill my being. Fill me right from the depths of who I am, right to the tips of my fingers, Lord Jesus. Come and take charge of me. Come and be my king. Blessed be your name, Lord. Lord Jesus.
From my heart to the heavens, Jesus be the center. It's all about you. Yes, it's all about you. From my heart to the heavens, Jesus be the center. It's all about you. Yes, it's all about you. Yes, Lord Jesus. I want you to listen to Tamsin for a month or two. Pray she gets delivered of this child peaceably and soon. Now, five weeks to go, ish. Um, I often pray for my brothers and sisters here because that's what we're supposed to do, right? And I love praying for you. And God speaks to us because He's He's with us. And um, I'll just read it exactly as I've written it down, otherwise, I'll go off. <laughs> Well, um, whilst praying on Saturday morning, the Lord reminded me of his sovereign presence and his attention to detail. He showed me a raspberry plant, not a literal there, in, but, you know, in my mind's eye. He showed me a raspberry plant, especially the leaves. And I saw the different shades of green. I saw the fragile and the intricate veins, the perfectly shaped points around the edges, like they'd been prepared by some divine pinking shears. And the Lord reminded me of the very specific plans he'd instructed for the tabernacle back in Exodus. The leaves and the fruit carved specifically and then plated with gold. Gold plating is a very, very intricate and difficult, skilled thing to do. And God chose specific people and equipped them specifically to do that. And God said to me, see how much care and detail I put into my house. He said, where is my house now? And he reminded me that his house is in his church, not a building, but his people, you and me. So thank you, David, for what you said in your preach. <laughs> it all ties in together. And then God said to me, see how much more valuable you are than plants and fruit, than gold and silver. I will indeed refine you and cause my house to be strong and beautiful for my glory and for my name. And he said, you are my house, and I am your God. Amen. 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 Amen.